You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Uh, we just want to begin by acknowledging um, that we are um, one, of the un- one of the host institutions for this event, that is the University of Melbourne, stands on the lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations, and that we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, So welcome to seminar three of the seminar series uh, on transitional justice and international law. Um, This, as you know, the series is jointly hosted by the Amsterdam Center for International Law at the University of Amsterdam and by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at Melbourne Law School. Um, I've had the great pleasure of um, co-convening this series with um, Dr. Eliana Cusato. Um, my name is Valeria Vázquez Guevara and I'm a PhD candidate at Melbourne Law School. Um, as you know, um, the series um, aims to bring scholars from all around the world to cover key themes um, about transitional justice, but with a particular focus on international law, we want to open up the conversation to understand better and take the role of international seriously in the field of transitional justice and transitional justice institutions. So we're really grateful to um, several people um, for making this event possible. In the first place, to Professor Sandia Pehuja at the Institute for International Law and the Humanities, and also at ELA and Melbourne Law School, we want to thank Catherine Taylor and Angela Henley Boyce for their administrative support to run this session. We also want to thank um, ASOL's um, director, uh, Ingo Vensky at the University of Amsterdam. Of course, the wonderful participants. So thank you so much for your ongoing interest in the series. And special thanks to today's speakers, um, Associate Professor Christine Shobo Patel from the University of Warwick Law School and Dr. Hannah Fransky from the University of Bremen. Uh, and now Eliana will continue to introduce the series. So thank you very much for, um, for participating. Thank you, Valeria. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, the uh, third uh, seminar of our series. My name is Eliana Pisato, and I'm a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow at the Amsterdam Center for International Law. So it's really my great pleasure to welcome you to this seminar titled Justice, the Political Economy of International Criminal Law. And our speakers for today are two brilliant scholars whose critical work on the relationship between market economy, violence, and international law has inspired many of us. Uh, so uh, we will have um, we have with us Dr. Christine Schwaber Patel, who is associate professor at Warwick Law School, where she's also the co-director of the Center for Critical Legal Studies. In her research, uh, Christine adopts a critical approach to the dominant framing of mass atrocity, humanitarianism, and legal institutions through the lens of political economy and aesthetics. She's the author of two monographs the very recently published Marketing Global Justice, Political Economy of International Criminal Law, which was published this year by Cambridge University Press, and Global Constitutionalism in International Legal Perspective, published uh, by Brill in 2011. 
and she's also the editor of Critical Approaches to International Criminal Law and Introduction, uh, as well as the co-editor of the forthcoming Aesthetics and Counter Aesthetics of International Criminal Justice, which will be published in 2022 by Counter Press. The second speaker today is Dr. Anna Franzki, who studied law, politics, and peace and conflict studies in Germany, Uruguay, and the UK. She's currently a, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen in Germany, and her research interests include critical approaches to international criminal law, critical legal theory, Walter Benjamin, discourses and around corporate violence and corporate accountability, among others. Her book, titled Responsabilidad Empresarial por Crimen de Lesa Humanidad, Narrativas Juridicas sobre Violencia, Estado y Economía en Argentina y Alemania, will be published later this year in Argentina. So the first speaker today will be um, Professor Christine Schwabel uh, Patel, and she will speak for about 15 minutes on marketing global justice, the political economy of international criminal law. And then we will hear from uh, Dr. Anna Fransky on international criminal law as a liberal project, uh, defining the place of the economic uh, in state crimes, also for 15 minutes. And at the end of the two presentation um, will be followed by a Q&A session. Uh, please feel free to post your comments and question in the Q&A box below. And I will ask, uh, collect and ask the question to Christine and uh, Anna. So uh, without further ado, I will give the floor or the video to Christine for her presentation. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm going to um, attempt to share my screen. Okay. Right. So thank you so much, Ileana and Valeria for the kind invitation and this very kind introduction also. And thanks to the Amsterdam Center for International Law and Melbourne Law School's Institute for International Law and the Humanities for hosting this online event. It is a great honor to speak as part of this um, series, having attended the previous um, talks already, which have been incredibly rich and um, fascinating. Uh, and it's a particular honor to speak alongside Hannah Fransky, whose work I admire greatly. I'll be talking about my recently published book, Marketing Global Justice, but this is to say that the book is published, but my research on political economy and international criminal law and transitional justice is ongoing, so I really do appreciate thoughts and feedback. So when you, let's uh, change the slide. Um, when you think about, um, hang on. <laughs> now I can't see my notes. <laughs> um, just a sec. If I go to the end. Okay, right. There we go, we're back on track. When you think about actors that invoke um, international criminal accountability, courts and tribunals such as the ICC, NGOs such as Amnesty International and even cities declaring their role in fighting injustice, you might have certain images in your mind, um, some of which are defined by the brands and logos attached to these actors. Um, 
And here I have um, collected some images that might be part of that catalog of um, images that you associate with individual criminal accountability. Uh, and I wanna state from the beginning that there's a particular genre um, of images that I've omitted here, namely that of victims of international crime. And there's a reason for, for omitting uh, those and I'll talk to that um, in a minute. So when I first set out to investigate the use of marketing strategies, including branding um, by the ICC, I soon realized um, through reading a broad array of marketing literature, most of which I cannot recommend, um, I soon realized that marketing was much more pervasive by those claiming to fight anti-impunity than I had initially thought. This pervasiveness of marketing made me realize that there is more going on here than slogans and hashtags. I also soon came to realize that it was not just international criminal tribunals that were being shaped by marketing, but that the idea of global justice itself was being shaped, i.e. narrowed, in a particular way. So that broadened my research questions. Uh, some of which were, in what ways are ideas of global justice redefined when they are made marketable? Who benefits and who loses when global justice is marketized? What are the constraints and opportunities of marketers, global justice for individuals, organizations, nation states, even cities that act in the name of global justice? And what is the political, economic, social, and cultural context of marketized global justice? Um, and really, uh, as you know, a spoiler of what I found, I found that there was a deep connection between international criminal law, neoliberalism and neocolonialism. I'm going to walk you through some of the main arguments um, of the book, um, going from political economy to spectacle to backlash and resistance and finally anti-marketized global justice. Okay, so political economy critique, um, what this uh, event is, is dedicated to. The use of marketing is commonly explained as a means of awareness raising, communication, outreach. So both um, th those working um, in international organizations as well as um, the, the um, critics of it, often refer to marketing as simply a form of communication, something that has to be done um, in order to reach a broader audience. But what intrigued me was how there were material implications of marketing. Marketing, in other words, has an effect on the distribution and lack of redistribution of resources. So this is where political economy critique comes in as identifying those who benefit and those who lose out. Um, and you will, I'm sure, be aware of the law and political economy movement, one could almost say, um, coming out of Yale and Harvard law schools and with a, a firm footing also in Europe and Australia too. Um, what I wanted to add to that perspective through historical materialism is um, viewing political economy specifically situated in material circumstances with particular um, attention to class. Okay, so these are um, two quotes which you might be familiar with because they have been reproduced many times. Um, 
Patu Bensouda said, the return on our investment for what others may today consider to be a huge cost for justice is effective deterrence and saving millions of victims' lives. And Carla de Ponte, in a famous speech um, directed towards Goldman Sachs or um, held at Goldman Sachs, said, investing in justice will bring the best dividends. Now, this language is indicative of the normalization of market terminology, but the way it tends to be analyzed is as though these, um, this market terminology of investments, stakeholders, dividends, and so on, as though they were somehow metaphorical. And what I found really important to say is that, um, Del Ponte and, and Fatou Bansouda, they're not so he hesitant, right? They're seeing investment here not as a metaphor, they're seeing this very much in their material sense about the distribution of resources. So the question then um, really for me was how did we get here in this normalization of marketing within the global justice sector? So situating global justice in historical material conditions brought me to the decade of the 1990s. Um, and uh, as scholars and students of international criminal law, you will be aware that um, many tribunals were set up, also referred to as the new tribunalism of the 1990s. Um, but you might be less um, aware of the so-called new branding in the 1990s. Um, and what I wanted to do was bring these two new tribunalism and new, tri uh, and new branding together. So just to say a few words on new branding. In the 1990s, branding was no longer simply about creating a logo. Instead, a new perspective was that products and companies should embody relationships, values, and feelings. So branding was about selling lifestyle rather than selling stuff although selling stuff was also uh, clearly critical to um, the brand. So this was really a move from things to um, image and universalizing of image. Um, and that was in the, um, for the purpose of um, being eliminating the competition, right? This is why uh, marketing is employed. And as you will see with some of those logos that I've included there, all of them um, US brands, uh, all of them really mega brands of the 1990s is that marketing leading to eliminating the competition um, means that these mega brands emerge, right? So there's a sense, there's an understanding that competition is about choice and about freedom. Um, but um, paradoxically, choice and freedom are in fact narrowed because of the dominance then of certain players. And that's something that then I um, uh, really saw also happening in international, um, uh, in international criminal law at that time. Now, I should say, of course, that at the same time as these brands were emerging in the 1990s, there also emerged a counterculture movement. One of them notably um, is called the Global Justice Movement. 
And Naomi Klein in her, Klein in her brilliant book, No Logo, really sets that out, uh, what was happening um, in terms of uh, new, new branding. And also then focusing on the grassroots movement of anti-corporatization -corporate, uh, of that time. So as you know, um, and I won't dwell on this, for too long. Uh, optimism about the market was also echoed, echoed in optimism for international law. So in the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War, there was this new interventionism, which legitimized, um, which was legitimized through references to humanitarianism and development. The consolidation of an international economic order that depoliticized issues of redistribution and the shift from human rights as a means of state accountability for individuals to individual criminal accountability as a means of state power. Um, and what I see happening there is that in both the new tribunalism and new branding, there were de demands for individualism, um, technologies of visibility, global ordering and the consolidation and, cons um, and concentration of power. Um, so I think this quote really captures it particularly well. And the game isn't who can make the biggest difference or is fighting the most important cause. It's he who has best marketing wins that um, CEO of um, Char Charity Navigator said this in uh, response to the Coney 20. Uh, 2012 campaign. And I think, again, um, referring to this is not about cynicism, it's about understanding um, the structures that create dominance of certain um, ideas at the expense of others. So I wanted to also say something about spectacle and its distributive effects. So when you're looking at marketing, you're inevitably looking at images and the same happens when you're looking at international criminal law. Images are um, central to the field. Um, and these images are, of course, as you know, not innocent. Um, so aesthetics started to play a big role in how I was understanding marketized global justice. Um, and particularly the racialized aspects of aesthetics. Now, this screenshot that I've got there is um, from the uh, landing page of the International Criminal Court. And it's so telling that on that first page of the International Criminal Court, there's not one, not two, there's three online photo exhibits all using that really familiar imagery of um, the global justice sector. And that sort of familiarity was something that I tried to work through. Um, Spectacore is centered in marketized um, forms of global justice, often in the form of a good evil narrative. And here I was building on work um, done by Kamari Clark and, and um, other Twail thinkers. So this is about the racialized distribution of what Jacques Frontier calls the sensible, right? So it's about um, the reiteration of certain images and symbols again and again until they become the common sense. Um, so and in the book, I focus in particular on victims and um, the sustaining of these stereotypes of a feminized, infantilized and racialized notion of what an ideal victim for fundraising purposes would be. 
So that placing of perpetrators and victors in, in the global south is the most on-brand version of marketized global justice. Um, the global justice sector then sustains the divide between the North and the South by imagining and constructing a seeing, knowing and giving audience from the global North and a seen, unknowing and receiving other from the global South. Um, and spectacularized images and narratives blind the spectator to longer histories of exploitation and resistance. So marketing does two things then. It um, normalizes the aspect of the market and then at the same time, it distracts from that normalization. Um, so that's where the market and marketing come uh, together. Okay, let me talk a little bit about um, backlash versus resistance. Um, we've we're all aware um, of the fairly dire track record of the International Criminal Court. Um, and I think, you know, we really need to have a conversation about what is prioritized in this um, discourse of the dire track record. It tends to be the money spent versus the cases heard. Um, and I mean, without being overly dramatic, I think it is worth saying, when will we be judging the ICC by whether it actually engenders peace through its interventions? In any event, the focus on value for money is what I call market-driven backlash, which is something that sustains, reaffirms um, the given system. Um, backlash is what I describe as the dehistoricized and depoliticized um, form of um, critique, and then resistance is historically sensitive and politically radical. So there I... Um, um, contrast backlash with resistance. Um, and just as one, I have three case studies in the book, and just as one example of um, uh, the resistance that I can see happening um, against international criminal law is um, uh, the 2016 withdrawal announcements of South Africa, Burundi, and the Gambia. Regardless of, you know, what ha happened afterwards, I think it's um, telling that this was um, a laying down of tools by the relevant states across the African continent, claiming that they no longer wanted to labor for international criminal law. So to um, conclude, I do think that there is something worth rescuing about global justice, particularly since it has in the past served as a rallying cry for internationalism against corporatization, not least by the global justice movement itself. Um, and in the book, I discuss four different um, tactics that might be employed. Um, unplugged global justice, which is about giving up marketized visual and linguistic habits. Oh, I'm happy to speak more to these in the questions. Despectacularized de global justice, which is about emphasizing the slow and the quiet, finding time to consider context. Unmasked global justice, which is about revealing and unsettling stereotypes through satire and then resistance global justice which foregrounds agency and action and is the type of um you know for agency um that um um might be familiar to you as in, uh, important resistance work so i i work there with rosa luxembourg's um conceptualization of reform and revolution placing that into conversation with rob knox's work on strategy and tactics so it's it's um 
I think important to say, as you will have gathered, that these tactics are not mutually exclusive, rather they can be employed by different actors at different times. The objective ultimately, the strategy ultimately, um, is to identify through this occupying of globe justice is to identify, create a space for the renewed flourishing of social values through an anti-imperial um, global justice. So thanks, I will stop sharing now. Okay, and hand over to Hannah. Thank you so much, Christine, for uh, the presentation. And yes, now, um, Anna, the floor is yours. Um, hi, everyone. Good morning. I also, yeah. Can you all see the presentation in your screens? Okay. Can you hear me as well? Yeah. Cool. So first of all, um, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really honored to be part of this seminar series and to be able to discuss some of my work um, with fellow researchers in the area. Um, I'm really, really happy to share that with Christine, whose um, work I also admire and I uh, can recall event, I think back in 2013 in London where I saw a presentation of yours. And it was really good to see that there's like other people working in the same direction within the field of international criminal law and not to be on your own. So um, what I want to do today is to um, present some of the ideas that I developed in my PhD, PhD research, which I finished in 2017, in which I'm currently reworking for the publication of the book in Spanish in Argentina, since a large part of the work is on ongoing trials in Argentina that investigate the responsibility of economic actors for crimes committed during the last dictatorship. And in my PhD in general, I'm interested, I was interested in the place of the economic in international criminal law and in state crime. And I approached this um, question about the economic in two ways. On the one hand, I was really um, struck by the absence of an explicit concern with economic dimensions of state crime and conflict in the 1990s at a time in which international criminal law re-emerges on um, the global surface as a, wheel to, as a way to deal with past uh, abuses of human rights and conflict and state crime as um, a central so-called tool of the transitional um, justice toolbox. And, um, and what, I, what struck me was given that for example, in Germany in the 1950s, even the most conservative groups would state that somehow capitalism had not served the German people in World War II, and then World War II was somehow connected to monopoly capitalism. When the Nuremberg trials at first got rediscovered as precedent in the 1990s, all the economic di dimension was totally absent from that reconstruction. And we can, and I made a similar observation for the case of Argentina and where 
within society after the end of the dictatorship, there was of course like this idea that the coup and the repression that followed was uh, aimed at mostly like the working class at repressing unionized resistance and that the dictatorship implemented a new economic model but then all the um, attention after the end of the dictatorship was on um, disappearances on the human rights abuses, but mainly working on the documentation and not so much working on the reasons. So um, on the one hand, I was concerned with like this absence of explicit concern and I tried to contextualize it in the academic and legal debate at the end and political debate in the end of the 80s and the 90s and the whole idea of the liberal peace, um, the end of histories and the combination of liberal democracy and the market economy as being the only possible way of organizing society in that in this context, there was no interest whatsoever in investigating um, or talk, I would not even a need to talk about economic dimensions of state violence, given the fact that according to the liberal division between the political and the economic, you could perfectly talk about democracy, democratization, and the quality of democracy, focusing merely on the institutions and not um, having to worry at all about social justice and participation, but rather just about representation. I'm not gonna talk so much about um, this bit of my research that I've published on that and there's, um, um, and you can also like, if you're interested in that bit, uh, my thesis is online, I'm um, available online. I want to use the rest of my time today to focus on the second part of research I did in my thesis which is to ask, well, so what happens if we do address the economic dimension of state crime through international criminal law, given that this was like an often a response to the identified absence um, and is something I think we can also observe within like the traditional justice literature more generally, they like over the last five years or six years or so, there's been like an increasing literature talking about like the need to address economic dimensions and to address the role of economic actors as this like being the solution to the diagnosed absence. So I was wondering what happens if law tackles uh, the responsibility of economic actors, what are the legal narratives it produces? And to that end, in order to answer this question, I did a close reading of the two sets of trials that to my knowledge were like the only ones that tried to systematically investigate the participation of economic actors in state crimes, which is um, on the one hand, the industrialist cases in Nuremberg after World War II and the ongoing cases in Argentina against economic actors that are accused of having collaborated with the military regime in order to have disappear their unionized workers. So what I'm gonna do uh, in the rest of the presentation is briefly um, tell a bit about how I look at these trials, what is like my approach to reading them, how I understand them, then um, tell a bit about 
the law, the line they draw between valid interactions between the economy and the state and those that are deemed invalid and illegal. And then I want to jump to the conclusions uh, and which I have summarized under the title Saving Capitalism. So a quick note on how I look at those trials. Um, these, of course, are not um, like the German trials and the Argentinian trials are not trials before an international tribunal, but rather national trials that apply international criminal law. And I look at them from a perspective what I call the politics of the past, which means that they create a narrative of um, the crimes they investigate of the past, which then by means of the judgment is turned into negative reference for the um, state that sits in judgment over the past, which means that it neatly packs up the crimes committed, say this is wrong, this is the behavior we do not tolerate, and we now communicate that this belongs to the past and is not part of the present order. So they really tell us much more about the order that sits in judgment over the past than about the crimes that were committed. And so what I do is I focus on these foundational narratives that are produced in the trials. And in the case of the trials that address um, the participation of economic actors in state crimes, these narratives are about the economic dimension of state crime. And in his work on political trials, Otto Kirchheimer, um, famously states that what these trials actually do is they draw a line. Um, and it is a line between those actions and political acts that are considered unlawful and against the values of humanity. And then on the other side of the lines, I, those acts that we might deem bad policies or we do not like, but they are not considered a crime. And my argument is that in the case of the trials that look at the participation of economic actors, these trials produce a distinction between inadequate uh, interactions between the state and economic actors and from adequate corporations and they draw these lines according to implicit assumptions about what is a good relationship between the state and the economy. And these assumptions are inherited from liberalism and the strict division between the state and the economy or the assumed uh, division, which is then set as a normative standard. And I take my understanding of liberalism from Foucault, who sees it as a logic of government that is characterized by management and organization of the conditions in which one can be free and is a logic which revolves around the question of how to limit government in relation to society and its economy. And of course, when we think of trials that investigate international crimes, um, they paint this picture of like the omnipresent state and the state that interferes with liberties on the individuals and violates human rights. And my argument is that in those trials that look at economic actors, it is also investigating like this omnipresent state that interferes with the free economy and therefore behaves against the law. 
Um, let me briefly just like mention two examples so that you can get an idea of what I mean by that. And I do this much more extensively in my research. Uh, and um, so this is really just an example. Um, let us briefly look at one count that was included in all three of the industrialist trials in post-World War Germany, which is the count of plunder and spoliation. Um, and what the judges did in this, uh, to investigate this count uh, was to interpret the Hague Conventions from 1907, mainly articles 45 to 46, which are about the protection of private property in war. And the judges um, did not follow all um, like the prosecution in all cases. So what they had to do is to introduce a distinction between those um, business transactions in war and the seizure of property that fulfilled the count of plunder and spoliation and those transactions that they considered to be legal even in the conditions of war. So when we look at how they introduced this distinction, uh, what we can see is in the first hand that they introduce uh, the logic of free choice as criterion for the validity of business transaction. That is to say, if we can assume that the Belgium industrial or the French industrial entered a contract with the German industrialist free choice, selling his or her property, um, then this is a legal act. And we have to assume that it was not the free choice if the German state forces, the military was somehow close and creating a free of force so that the French or Belgium industrialists would have to fear that if they do not sell their property for some price to the German industrialists, then the German state would come and seize the property. So um, what is behind this reasoning actually is that the problem is not so much the industrialist participating or entering economic transactions with the, under, with the other industrialists and taking advantage of the situation. But what creates the legal situation is the German state entering and freeing on this free sphere of the market economy and thereby violating the rules of the market. And I think this is really interesting to see because often, especially within the current corporate accountability discourse, the industrialist trials are taken as the first instance of corporate accountability and has somehow the first attempt to limit the violence of capitalism. And what we see when we look really closely at the legal arguments that are presented in the trials is that they do pretty much the opposite is that they say actually would have the state not in fit with the free market, then there wouldn't have been a problem. And um, let me briefly like just recount one example from the Argentinian trials as this is um, also like a different line of argument has pretty much to do with the way the international criminal law envisions the criminal state. So um, there are, as I said before, the set of trials investigating um, the participation of economic actors in crimes against humanity during the last dictatorship, which lasted from 76 to 83. 
And I briefly want to talk about the Ledesma case, which is a sugar mill, sugar company in the nor in northern Argentinian close to the border with Bolivia. It's kilometers away from like the political center in Buenos Aires. And the first sugar mill in that area was even present before the Argentinians that existed. And by the population, it was always felt at the real govern, governor rather than the state. It provided for long-term housing, healthcare in really bad conditions. Um, and it was the sole employer in the area, has lots of um, property, um, lots of territory. So um, in the um, testimonies that we hear in the proceedings um, uh, before the oral trial, which hasn't started yet, but that's like a different story, but like lots of documents, uh, years of investigation already ongoing. Um, if we see the strategy of the, of the lawyers that work for the victims is to say, Yes, it was um, military personnel that in two particular nights during a power cut um, made disappear workers and people from the area. But we think it's not the military that are responsible for that, but it's the, the director and the former head of human resources from the company as they were those who had the real interest that, in the, that the organized uh, workers would leave the company and would disappear. And the argument they tried to make and the argument that emerges from the testimony is that actually Desma, like the company functions like a state within a state and is it like the head of the company that had the real structural power over the locals like pol police authorities. And what happens when this argument is transformed into a legal argument is that you see how the responsibility of the economic actors gets reduced to their participation of um, the supply of vehicles to the military for the abduction in individual cases. And it's um, removed from authorship and phrased in terms of, um, of aiding the crime. And the argument I develop here and what I think, and you can observe that in loads of other ways of construct, constructing legal responsibility is that um, international criminal law uh, assumes the existence of a rebellion state, um, which is an organized power structure, hierarchical. And in Argentina by now, the doctrine of perpetration of crime through organized power structure is really well accepted. It was developed by Klaus Oxine after World War II in order to get those perpetrators, the famous desk perpetrators. But of course, it does not work, it does not capture any structural correlation. So there is an implicit assumption about how power works and this on how control of action works. And these assumptions are based on particular perspective on the state. And this is like a liberal state which is separated from the economy. So here again, we have an example of um, how basic assumptions of liberalism structure the way we think responsibility in relation to economic actors in state crime. And now let me jump to the conclusion. I'm gonna finish by that. So, um, 
what I observe is that in those cases in which there is the intention to share the responsibility of economic actors, intentionally or not, uh, what actually comes out is a narrative that saves capitalism from its link to systematic violation of human rights abuses. And we have that in the case of Germany, and this is like really reducing it to a nutshell to say, well, the problem was monopole capitalism, was the concentration and what the meddling of the state with the economy. And what we need is a free market that organizes competition. And this is the way we can guarantee freedom. This is like the lessons learned from the political economy. If you look at the narratives from the industrialist trials, what we have in the Argentinian trials where you really have um, victims who participate in the trials who really want to get forward with a, like an overall narrative of the economic logic behind the dictatorship that want to bring out the systematic cooperation of companies and the state. Um, all the participation eventually get reduced to greed or individual participation or like personal issues of the uh, directors of the companies with their workers. And so, and this is possible, and this is, I'm gonna close with that because um, they, there is an, like a narrative that does not think in terms of a logic of capital, capital, but rather in the logic of historical manifestations of capitalism. So we, the, the lessons learned is we not just need a better version of capitalism, which is like the free market capitalism in order to um, guarantee democracy. And um, so um, I'll leave it here and look really forward to the discussion. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anna, as well, for your presentation. So we will have now a few, I think, 10 minutes, even a little bit more uh, for asking questions to Christine and Anna. Um, I've seen that there is already a question there in the chat, in the Q&A, but just to give perhaps the audience uh, <clears throat> a little bit more time to formulate their thoughts, um, maybe I will uh, uh, use my privilege as chair to ask a question to both of you um, that in a way uh, kind of relates to my research area. As I said, your work has been quite inspiring. And, uh, um, and even though you didn't really, you, you just touched upon this um, issue in your presentation, um, I think both of you have reflected in your um, in your previous work, uh, but even in uh, a little bit in this presentation about the relationship between uh, uh, the notion of liberal peace and uh, transitional justice uh, in the case of Anna and international criminal law in the case of Christine. So, um, so I was wondering if you would like also to uh, share your thoughts on how, in your opinion, international law is involved in uh, building, constructing this nexus between peace and economic or market liberalization uh, in, in societies that are, um, you know, fragile society or, you know, conflict society. And um, so what do you, how do you, how do you see, you know, the role of international law in this process of, uh, uh, of bridging, right, these two um, ideals, if we want, right? 
Shall I start? Um, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, that's a that's a really great um, question, and it's something that um, I've been thinking about a, a lot more recently, actually, in preoccupation with frontier capitalism and how. Um, uh, transitional justice mechanisms, including international criminal law, um, in, enable um, uh, the um, certain economic um, shifts in uh, conflict and post-conflict states. Um, so what I think is really important there is to not see um, these fractured disciplines of international law as somehow separate. So my kind of entry into it is to think about international criminal law and investment law together, right? So um, what um, the quote that I had um, on the screen by um, Carla Del Ponte, where she says, you know, it, it, it's essentially using international criminal law in order to make a state in order to appear to make a state safe for investment, right? So the two have to be seen together because um, the inter, you know international criminal law, transitional justice is seen as that which will stabilize a state in order then to create um, confidence by foreign actors to then invest. So in the book, I look at how that's done through um, nation branding, in particular, um, one of the examples I, I use is how South Africa employs this um, transitional justice, marketized idea of transitional justice in order to attract investors, right? So the state brand it, it brands itself and uses actually uh, different agencies to create a state brand um, that is then not only intended to attract foreign investors, but is also intended to have an effect on the population, right? So everyone becomes this stakeholder. <laughs> um, the, the, all of the citizens are then part of this idea of let's create this idea that we have tr transcended conflict, we are now um, a peaceable population and um, our economy is ready for um, investments um, by, by um, my foreign investors and then we will all flourish, right? This is sort of the narrative that, that comes with that. Okay, thank you so much for the question. And I just gonna add to what Christine just said that in addition to the historical incidents with um, international investment law and the whole idea of development through foreign investment, um, what I'm interested in or what I or was interested in my research, and I think it's really important is how in academia, discussion shifts so that this um, incidence of economic revelation and democ like democratization at first is not perceived in the community that is um, investigating. And I think what really is at work here is um, political liberalism and the whole idea of liberal democracy uh, and the fact that within the literature and even within academic literature, democracy is 
only understood in terms of uh, this whole like transition to democracy literature in terms of uh, elections and some sort of competition of political parties and that all other meanings of democracy, economic democracy, um, social democracy, socialist democracy get sidelined by this liberal democracy, by the like total dominance that democracy means liberal democracy, which then um, does not present a contradiction to the social inequality created by the market, by the openings of societies in the global south towards foreign investment, so that you could on the one hand, like, and here I see the role of international criminal law, it could go like totally unperceived that this, it comes hand in hand with an economic project. And I think this is like interesting in, in the whole debate. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I have a we have a question from uh, Tapas Kanti Baul. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing correctly uh, your name, who is a prosecutor of the International Crimes Tribunal of Bangladesh. And I think his question is more about how uh, would you um, describe the uh, political economy of the um, Israeli and Palestinian conflict? Of course, we have uh, this is a very topical and timely, of course, issue. And um, in your, even though you are not perhaps focusing specifically on this conflict, how would you apply this framework or this uh, theoretical um, um, critique to understand what's going on there? Um, and um, also how marketing perhaps is involved to a certain extent, right? Uh, so it's open uh, to both of you and uh, please feel free to you know, jump in, Hansa. Do you want to go first, Hannah, this time? Um, I, I, I was about to unmute just to say that uh, I cannot really answer that question. I don't have the knowledge, uh, like the deep knowledge that I would need in order to answer this question properly. Um, so I'll just say two um, brief things um, about it. Um, and first of all, to note, um, of course, there is a um, there, there is a, a, a movement in order to recognize what is happening in um, it, in this um, situation um, as apartheid and settler colonialism, and they're of course classified as crimes against humanity. So there's a particular international criminal law aspect to this um, and I sort of would defer there to the work that's being done by Nura Erekat in particular um, who has thought very carefully um, about how um, the, the case um, that is under investigation at the ICC can be employed for tactical reasons. It somewhat marries up with um, what I was saying at the end about different versions of anti-marketized global justice. And this would probably, I would classify as re resistance global justice where um, uh, agency is then um, uh, of the oppressed is highlighted. Um, on the more general aspect of, of propaganda and, um, and, and this um, conflict, which was, I think, what the, the 
um, question was directed towards. I mean, it, it goes without saying that the political economy of, of, of propaganda um, is directed towards those who can organize and, and, and um, communicate through resources. And of course, there is an inherent imbalance there in terms of where the, where the resources are directed. And when it comes to communicating a dominant narrative, um that is clearly with israel however also you know we really have seen um in the past weeks in particular some rupturing of that dominant narrative and how that is reproduced so yeah it's a, a, a somewhat unsatisfactory response perhaps but i would definitely defer to palestinians working in this area and in particular nura erika who is wonderful Thank you so much. Yeah, that was a tough question, I guess. And uh, yeah, I, I thank you. Yeah, you, you answered in, uh, yeah, in a great way. So there is another question actually for you, Christine, uh, from um, Galina Naleva, uh, who asked, uh, would you say that nowadays we are seeing the emergence of an anti-global justice movement? If yes, how would you characterize this movement? Who are its uh, participants? So um, they say research on backlash against international courts and tribunals centers on states, so especially as you mentioned, African states, um, but is there any grassroots resistance to international court as well? Sorry. Thank you. Can I And of course, uh, yes. Because I think this question that Galina has asked also applies to the case of Argentina um, very well, because we see in Argentina this big tension between, yes, let's prosecute, we're so proud of what we achieved, and a big grassroots movement, but at the same time resistance to the IMF. Um, so I was wondering if also Hannah, after Christine responds to the question, could, could speak a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I was about to say also, and I mean, you might want to jump in as well and uh, yeah, and share your thoughts on this. Yeah, of course. Um, so I'd say to that, um, I, I wrote, wrote the book in response to a sense that there is um, a pushback um, against both neoliberalism and international criminal law, which is coming also from grassroots movements. Um, and there is some sort of overlap between the pushback, in particular when we think about the racializing aspects, right? Um, so I um, think that both are um, fairly weak um, structures um, and that is why they employ marketing, right? It's like um, when there's nothing left in terms of persuasion on the basis of social values, you need to reach for um, these, these marketing um, tools, which are often pathetic, <laughs> right? If you look at some of the hashtag campaigns on global justice, if you look at the way in which the narrative of neoliberalism is sold, um, there's something really cringeworthy about it and something that really mapped onto that marketing literature that I was reading sort of between, <laughs> you know, <laughs> interlaced <laughs> fingers. 
Um, so I think that, yes, there, there is a questioning of these dominant narratives. Um, and in my work, I was particularly inspired by the Occupy movement and by Black Lives Matter movement to think about how are these destabilizing the dominant narratives? Um, and where can we see those? Now, in, in the case studies, I look at very specific incidents. So I look at, at the Coney 2012, um, uh, in response to the Coney 2012 campaign, when um, the um, when the marketing video for Invisible Children was shown um, in, uh, um, in northern Uganda in the site of the conflict, um, how there was resistance to that marketization, right? That, um, and, and where um, there was a, an a understanding that these are, these are stereotypes being used and so on. So I think, yes, there are sites of resistance and sites of grassroots resistance, certainly. It's about, as with all other um, resistance, um, it's about interlinking those understanding um, moments of um, resistance to oppression as, as linked um, through solidarity movements. Okay. Um, so I have two thoughts on that. The first one is, um, I don't see so much resistance against global justice as stronger voices to speak of global justice in different terms than international criminal law or um, liberal or free trade, right? Um, and I think it really depends also on where in the world you are, which are like the, the more most pressing issues. Um, speaking from, um, from Germany, there has been, of course, like the whole debate about migration, much more pressing, press, like pressing people dying in the Mediterranean and the whole issue of migration regimes, um, which make much more obvious that the whole international, like the, the, the injustice that international criminal law talks about is, maybe not the main problem the world has at the moment. And so my impression is that there are voices emerging that question that um, the violence committed in terms of, in, in context of ethnicized conflicts or authoritarian regimes like dictatorships is the issue that defines humanity and that there's other issues coming up which are contesting. And the same goes for um, the inequality um, produced by global capitalism at the moment. And I think this is um, of course much more perceived and problematized today even in mainstream literature than it was 15 years ago. Um, so I, my impression is that there's like, it's, much more open and much more offer discussion today what we're talking about when we talk about global justice than this was 15 years ago and um 
And the whole question is, does international criminal law have a place in that or not? Is it a tool to, to advance in terms of social justices or is it, is it maybe not? And, um, and this is a question I've asked myself a lot in the cases in Argentina, for example, and also those um, attempts of strategic litigation to address like the participation of German companies in Argentina and in Brazil and so on. Um, given the fact that from what I can tell so far from my knowledge about international criminal law, there is this tendency to focus on the individual, to assume like the individual that acts intentionally, you get have a really hard time talking about structural problems in, in, in a legal language. So does this mean now that there's no use for international criminal law when we are when we care about those questions? And here my answer, and this is I think also an answer that I find in the people interviewed and the colleagues from Argentina who are really aware of the limits of the language of criminal law, but nevertheless push for these trials to happen as on the one hand, um, if you get like criminal law gives you um, a way to press for house searches that produces documents, you get testimonies that you otherwise would not get. Uh, it's a way to work it and you get stories and um, documents that then in a way, and this is, this is like the, the way I read these trials, produce evidence about structural complicities, structural violence, um, economic violence, then this is, which cannot be captured by international criminal law, but which at the same time then enables you to see the limits of in the language of international criminal law or of criminal law as a way to talk about the violence of the past. So I found that these trials, even though the, the narratives they produce are really limited, at the same time, they subvert their own findings by giving access to loads of materials and so on that enable you to question the very narratives they try to produce. And for me, this is like the subversive element in the trials is that they hardly ever succeed in being credible. And this is like the big uh, point where I diverge from transitional justice literature for me like, like a, a progressive trial or like, or like an interesting trial that is one that opens up again, that leaves room for discussion and to, and to question like the assumptions that liberalism has made us believe are the, are the only ones. Thank you so much. I mean, I don't know if I can still um, ask a last question. Uh, very quickly, we received this question from Thomas um, in the Q&A. There is a question for you, Christine, which says, what in your view are the most promising counter strategies of those mentioned at the end? Would you have an example? And I think this connects also to the question that Jessica asked about, you know, like a practical advice for perhaps a grassroots movement that wants to combine social justice and uh, um, criminal justice, right, too. Um, and then a question for Anna that also relates to what you just mentioned, right? So um, he says, you talk about how the politics of the past are drawing a line whereby economic crimes are said to belong to the past. So I was wondering whether you look at how the past is still present today. 
and uh, how the past economic crimes might have consequences even in the present. So if you very quickly in a couple of minutes, if you want to address those questions, that would be great. Thanks. So um, I think there's, yeah, there's long answers and, and short answers to this, definitely. Um, I would say, um, so when I look at the, the work that's being done by PhD students um, on international criminal law at the moment, I sort of really take heart um, that the critique is going in new and interesting directions. So thinking about linking um, the, um, uh, the abolition of slavery with um, international criminal law and thinking about how that also decentered victims and how to then again amplify voices from the global south. So I think that what I take most heart from is the um, you know the decolonizing movement really from from with all its faults and all its marketized aspects and all its revisionism um it is um, a means of amplifying voices from the global south it is a means of providing historical context um and it is really a means of um um consciously consciously shutting down particular habits. So for Jessica, you know, I would say um, in, in terms of a, a new organization aimed at transformative justice, I think that, you know, these, these are really big questions and you're working within a particular structure that will, will limit what you can do. But at the same time, there are things you can do. You can resist the stereotyping of victims. You can um, resist the marketized language of speaking about victims as stakeholders, for example, these are fairly, these are fairly simple things, but I think at the end of the day, quite effective things. And, and um, I'm often accused of being cynical, particularly by my students, but I think these are actually sides of, of optimism, right? You can actually do um, uh, certain, uh, you can actually change habits um, and that can then lead to um, a linking with a, a greater movement. So yeah, elevating, amplifying voices from the global south in particular is something that I'm seeing at the moment and I think is a positive development in terms of, I don't know, international criminal law. I mean, I recently said in a talk, defund the ICC and then I was like, oh gosh, there's no way back from that. But in a way, I think that that is true, right? We need to defund the ICC in order to amplify other forms of being and living, taking into account social justice, which is um, uh, historically informed. Thank you very much, Ileana, for your question about the consequences of um, economic crimes or uh, economic policies, so to say. So I think just talking about the Argentinian case, I think what is interesting to see is that the uh, whole interest and the prosecution of economic actors got revived after the huge and massive debt crisis in 2000 in Argentina, which left so many people unemployed, lots of people lost their savings. And so there was like this, like this real understanding that 
those uh, neoliberal reforms that are implemented in the dictatorship, which were then deepened in the 1990s, led to this uh, massive crisis, which affected so many people in Argentina, that in a way, you need to address this dimension of the dictatorship in order to come to actual new democracy. What you could observe there in the political discourse of, of Nestor Kirchner at that time is that he first tried to um, address the issues in two separate realms. So there were, like his discourse was, in order to finally achieve democracy, we need to and um, abolish the amnesty laws and get the prosecution started of the military actors. And we need economic reforms that reverse the economic models that was chosen in the 80s and the 90s. And then um, later these two strands merge saying, well, actually what we need is to prosecute not only the military actors, but also the economic actors in order to judge the economic model of the dictatorship. And what I discuss um, here in my thesis is the relationship between debt and guilt and how criminal law applies a logic of guilt, which is also structural like in temporal logic in a hope to cancel the historical debt. And this works um, in terms of individual responsibility, but does not work in terms of economic legacy. And so like, especially for those who speak German, like Schuld, Schulden in German, it's the, um, it's the same word. I draw on the work on, on, on Walter Benjamin, who really points this out in his text, Capitalism as Religion. Um, so I think there's like really like interesting work to be done here, looking how um, the legal language tries to cancel economic temporalities in a way, and uh, the way it doesn't work. Thank you so much to uh, both of you. That was really, really fascinating discussion. We have really run out of time, I think. We, uh, even though we still have a few questions in the chat, but perhaps you know maybe this conversation can be continued in uh, in other ways. I just want to say thank you again uh, to Christine and Anna for joining us um, for this seminar, uh, for their generous uh, engagement with our um, you know. With, uh, with, with this series and for sharing with us the research, uh, such a fascinating uh, topic and uh, of course very timely and important. And thanks to everyone who, who joined us today. Uh, just a quick reminder that we will have our last session for this, um, this academic year uh, on the 16th of June, where the topic will be dealing with the past, reconciliation, reparations, and beyond. And we will have Oishik uh, Sinkar, Sarah Kendall, and Chris Givers uh, as uh, speakers. So um, that's all, I think, for today. Uh, a virtual round of applause for Christine and Anna, and uh, yes, uh, I, I hope we will continue this conversation uh, in the future. Thank you again and have a good day. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.